Hallelujah. Father, we thank you that in Christ our Lord, whose death on Calvary paid for our sins, that we have every reason to rejoice as your blood, dear Jesus, washed away the filthiness of our souls. Not only this, as we have studied last week, the cup of the wrath of the Father that was poured out and was drunk to the dregs by Christ our Lord was the cup that we deserved and that would be poured out on us, foaming wine, well mixed, upon the wicked, if it had not been for the atonement of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we realize the weight of our sin, we realize the weight of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. As we realize that our sin is rolled off our shoulders, we realize the freedom we have in Christ. We are no longer slaves to what once held us bound and rendered us dead in our trespasses, Because we are free and slaves of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who went before representing us, who gave himself a sacrifice, and now intercedes forever in the throne room of God on our behalf, the one and only, full and final mediator between God and man. So in light of this, we glorify and praise the name of Jesus today. And as we look to the word As we open these pages, I pray, Lord, that you would open the recesses of our heart to receive the implanted Word of God, that it would find there fertile soil made so by the Spirit, that it would produce fruit unto the praise of your great name. May you be glorified in the proclamation and in the effect of your Word preached this day in every single one of us. It has the power to draw unto salvation men who as as of yet have not confessed faith in Christ. And it has the power to equip us to walk in a manner worthy of that great call. May you accomplish both of these through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. It is often my prayer that we never, through familiarity, lose our appreciation and anticipation of our meeting here together and opening up the Holy Scriptures and considering the Word of God. Let us turn to Jonah chapter 4 this morning, verses 3 through 5. Just three verses will be our main text today under this title, Anger versus Compassion. Expanding the title with the subtitle, we see in our text today, Jonah's anger contrasted to God's patience, God's compassion. Jonah's anger, God's compassion. These are themes that we see portrayed in the final words in Jonah's account in this minor prophet. We will touch on them today. The aim of this morning's message is I trust the aim of the book itself in part The book of Jonah is written to do two things. First of all, to expose textbook sins. To expose common, prevalent, or textbook sins. And secondly, to magnify the kindness of God. To expose our sin and to magnify the kindness, you could say grace and mercy of God. With Jonah 4 open before you, 
Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word in reverence and fear as we consider these scriptures? Jonah 4, 3, 4, and 5. Here is the holy word of God. Therefore now, O Lord, Jonah says, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Instead of dealing with a wicked people as Jonah thought he should, The Lord uses this occasion post-repentance of this entire city, 120,000, we read the final verse of this chapter, and the cattle and everything have been affected by the preaching of God's word. Instead of dealing with them as Jonah thought they should, something akin to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord uses this occasion at the close of this saga, this account, to discipline his servant, to discipline the prophet Jonah. It really begs this question, how often does our self-justified condemnation of others serve as a convenient smokescreen for our own sin? Let me ask you that question again, because this is the way that we can apply and relate to Jonah's account. How often does our self-justified condemnation of others, pointing the finger elsewhere, how often does that serve as a convenient smokescreen to cover our own sin? If we can direct our attention or others' attentions to a problem over here, maybe a societal issue, maybe the wickedness of the environment we live in, or certainly someone far more wicked than us, or this gross example of depravity, or that uh, wanton example of hideous sin. If we can point people's attention in those directions, perhaps one of the motives in doing so is to take the eyes off of ourselves. Knowing, if we're honest with ourselves, that we have every good reason to confess sins in our own souls. But this smokescreen of self-condemnation or justified condemnation of others may be a useful tactic in our sin and our wickedness to distract attention and bid us more time. Issues with others in this way then are exploited as useful means to divert attention from the plank in our own eye. As Christ has told us that we try to take the splinter often out of our brother's eye or neighbor's eye. Meanwhile, there's a plank in our own, illustrating for us the essence of hypocrisy. These three verses, Jonah 4, 3 through 5, illustrate a principle in Scripture, which I believe uh, answers a couple things. First of all, this first part, it exposes textbook sins. But secondly, this closing account in Jonah does something else. It answers a perennial biblical question. I don't know if you've heard this term in philosophy or theology before, theodicy. Have you heard that term? Theodicy is a word that a, I don't know, a savvy atheist or someone who thinks they have good reason to doubt the existence of God might employ. I don't believe in God because, you know, the theodicy question. Theodicy means, or it's a term that deals with the justification of a good and powerful God in light of evil in the world. The question is this, how could an all-powerful, loving, good God exist given all the evil in the world? I believe Jonah answers this question in his book, and I'll give you 
my summary of the answer. I have used this phrase in my own mind, in my own conversations, in defense of the faith over and over again, so I commend it to you. It's simply a summary of biblical truth. God has chosen to manifest His glory by reflection and by contrast. The very first message I preached when this church went public, as it were, when we gained our first building, one prior to this one, ten years ago, I remember that was the theme of that message indeed. God has decreed, He has chosen, He has ordained to manifest, to show His glory in two ways. One is by reflection, and the second is by contrast. Why does the book of Jonah end in this seemingly anticlimactic fashion? Why don't we have Jonah celebrating with the people upon their repentance? Why don't we have some kind of high point moment where everyone kind of lives happily ever after in the glow of this great revival? Why don't we have this you know, closing chapter announcing to us that in the years that would come, the city would be reformed? Instead, we have the self-indulgent, contemplative, bad attitude musings of a surly prophet. Why does the book of Jonah end this way? It seems to me the most obvious question is to magnify this very principle of providence that God uses sin itself, even our own sin, even the sin of his prophet Jonah to display his grace and mercy. You see, God has chosen to manifest his glory not just by reflection, but also by contrast. We see his glory contrasted to Jonah's attitude. We can say on behalf of the Ninevites, thank God the Lord is gracious and merciful, and in contrast to Jonah. We see that though these people deserved hell itself, not to mention their own destruction, God was pleased to glorify himself in contrast to their own wickedness, in contrast to the prophet who wanted otherwise, by giving them, granting them salvation. So that contrast then in the book of Jonah is true in the case of the corporate example of Nineveh and the individual example of Jonah. Begrudgingly and truthfully, Jonah acknowledges this in our text, just one verse previous, verse 2. Recalling these words, he prayed, speaking of Jonah, to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And listen, our last time we were in this passage, we focused on these words. For I knew, Jonah says, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God was not like Jonah. God was gracious and merciful. God was not like the Ninevites. He was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In contrast to these two examples, God is pleased to glorify Himself. Consider this feature in the book of Jonah alongside the all-too-common misconception that the God of the Old Testament, quote-unquote, is some kind of vindictive, judgmental tyrant, while the Jesus of the New Testament is a poster child of hippie values, of unconditional, sentimental love. This is a point that I was discussing and was brought clearer to me in a conversation with a friend recently. The book of Jonah turns on its head many of the assumptions, misconceptions in our culture today. 
After all, this verse that Jonah quotes, or this confession that Jonah states, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We reference at least three other passages. As I recall, Joel 2, uh, there was one in Exodus and another in Deuteronomy, where the Lord is shown in the Old Testament to be abounding in steadfast love. God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New we see Jesus in his role as judge in the New Testament as well as extending mercy on the cost of his own flesh and blood to the redeemed. And thus we see the continuous message in Scripture is that God is a God who in contrast to the sin of man glorifies himself in providing redemption upon here the future price paid of his own son to demonstrate his grace and his mercy, his slowness to anger, his steadfast love and relenting from disaster because he has made a way. And that way, that truth, and that life are Jesus Christ, our Lord. This message of Jonah, these, these themes that I give you, especially to expose textbook sins and to magnify the kindness of God in contrast to other examples. This message is not unique to Jonah. Let's consider some allusions this morning associated with just these three verses, and we will find the rest of the Bible reinforcing this powerful truth, that God delivers His Word to expose our sin and to magnify His kindness upon our repentance. Here's a heading for you. Parallels. Reinforcing the message of Jonah. Biblical or contextual, you could say, biblical or contextual parallels, reinforcing the message of Jonah. Let's look at the first one that occurs to me in verse 4, and let's call this the Cain question. You remember Cain and Abel? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll remind you from our text today that there is a, almost a quotation, certainly an echo or an illusion of this passage, that is Genesis, this account in Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel, even in our text today. Jonah is angry. He asked the Lord to take his own life from him. He says in his self-pity that it's better for him to die than to live. Verse 4, the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Does that question sound familiar? We go to Genesis 4 and listen to this. You remember the story, verse 2. Again she bore, speaking of Eve, his brother Abel, Cain's brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and his offering, excuse me, offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, listen, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Do you do well? Will you not be, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Do you notice that this question of Cain by the Lord could be rephrased almost word for word and still make the same point as the question that the Lord posed to Jonah? 
Do you do well to be angry? Your reaction, the Lord says to Cain, the Lord says to Jonah, and if we are guilty of their same attitudes to us, your reaction to the favor of God witnessed in your experience, it demonstrates, it reveals something about your soul. And if you find yourself in the self-justification, the it's-not-fair attitude, the self-righteousness, the questioning of God and His immutable character and glory place that Cain or Jonah did, this disconnect, as you witness the favor of the Lord, could evidence a dangerous condition in your own soul. When God asked of Jonah, do you do well to be angry? It was a patient rebuke, but it was also an intense warning. It is the same question virtually that God asked Cain. And Jonah, when he heard those words, should have been reminded of this passage in Genesis 4. If you do well, will you not be accepted? You are angry, why has your face fallen? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, if you find yourself at odds with the Lord's will, angry with Him, questioning Him, if you find that it doesn't sit well with you, what He has planned and purposed, then you should search your own soul. Sin is crouching at the door. And that question of the Lord is a gracious call to repent. Think of what you're doing. Think of who you're questioning. Consider this presumptuous place that you are in, Jonah. Do you presume to be wiser than me? We can trust that Jonah did, in fact, heed them. But Cain was another story instead. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. This is Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said again a question. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The heart of one who would question God, why are you judging according to these terms? Why are you letting these go free when I think they deserve to die? The heart of someone who would stand presumptuously to judge God in that situation is in effect saying, I will take justice into my own hands. The consequences of this sin crouching at the door are devastating indeed. The Lord has set us free in Jesus Christ from the burden of justice, taking these things into our own hand. Vengeance is mine, we read in Romans 12, 11 and 12. I will repay, saith the Lord. And then the Lord actually provides means for him to intervene in situations like this. This question ought to ring the bell of alarm in Jonah's mind and in ours if we find ourselves at odds with God's decision. We should ask ourselves, do we do well to be angry? Now, in Jonah's case, the Lord was gracious to him. The Lord organized circumstances and appointed three things, a plant, a worm, and the sun, to teach 
his son a lesson. But again, this is in contrast to Jonah's heart. Jonah's heart was like Cain's. He was questioning God's judgment in this situation. But God, in contrast to Jonah's sin, was gracious to him and began to lead him to an awareness of his position and presumably to confession and hopefully repentance in Jonah's case as well. So the parallels that reinforce the message of Jonah come all through Scripture. We could look at this situation and see parallels to Cain, but we could also look at this situation and see parallels to Esau. And since we've touched on this lately in our Hebrews series, let's reinforce this idea from Hebrews 12 and Genesis 25 in relationship to our text today. In Hebrews 12, there's a warning that no one, I'll back up in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. In the heart of Jonah, this was fertile soil, I submit to you in his soul for a root of bitterness to spring up and for, and then consequently, if it was allowed to remain in his heart for many to become defiled. It goes on in Hebrews 12 that no one, see to it that is, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In Genesis 25, we won't go there this morning, but we went there recently, verses 29 through 34, recall the exchange when Esau comes in exhausted from the field, having hunted all day. And Jacob makes a deal with him. All Esau really wants is a bowl of soup. And Jacob says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, if you give me your birthright, I will give you this red bowl of lentil soup. And so Esau says, wow, what good is my birthright to me? I'm about to die. And so the exchange is made. Esau gets his bowl of soup, the birthright, as it were, goes to Jacob. And the last phrase in that chapter is, Esau despised his birthright. And this is the idea that uh, these sinful situations brings to the fore. Losing the perspective of eternal consequences, blinded by immediate desires. We need to know our own weakness. The immediate desires, in Jonah's case, the desire to see these guys get what was coming to them. After all, there are arch enemies. Or in Jonah's case, the desire to have a shade plant over him. And so he can get just a brief respite from the sun that beats down upon him in this, no doubt, desert environment. But when God brings the worm and causes the plant to be destroyed... Jonah despairs and he says, it is better for me to die than to live. He said it twice now. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is looking. He's lost the perspective of eternal consequences. He doesn't have the capacity in this frame of mind to consider the miracle he has just witnessed. He'd rather have a plant over his head giving him shade than to care about the soul's of 120,000 pagans that were hell-bent before he preached his very effective eight-word sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
Are we ever in danger of losing our eternal perspective because of our immediate desires? Are we ever susceptible to trading the holiness that God requires for the promise of immediate gratification or momentary happiness? Of course we are. It's not like Jonah is some isolated example or I can never see myself being like Esau. To have that attitude is to commit the very same thing that Jonah did, to point elsewhere as a smokescreen for our own sin. We are not unlike Esau, and neither was Jonah. We need to guard against the tendency of our wicked hearts, apart from the grace of God, when we focus on the sin that can easily beset us, of despising the greater glory of God. And also we could, if we were like Jonah, despise his promises and his prerogative. The Lord's judgments, his wisdom are inscrutable. Who can know them? Who can figure out what God's judgments were? Who can weigh all the criteria and determine, okay, yes, the Lord, yes, God, I verify that this decision you've made in this circumstance is the correct one, having verified the condition of each and every heart in the city of Nineveh, and knowing that each and every repentance was, yes, uh, a legitimate one, and they weren't just faking it for their neighbors and so on and so forth. If we were to be so presumptuous to do this, we are saying that the Lord's ways and His judgments can be known by man, and we might as well be God. This is as wicked as original sin, exalting ourselves above the knowledge of God, claiming that we can act independent of Him. And it's the sin that we see prevalent in Scripture, exemplified in Jonah, Esau, and Cain. Let us recognize it if it should crop up in our own souls, confess and turn to the Lord. If I could choose a word or term to summarize Jonah's attitude generally, it seems like self-pity would be a good choice. Notice in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. These are words of self-pity. Matthew Henry says of Jonah's attitude, Sin and death are very dreadful. Yet Jonah in his heat could say his anger makes light of them both. Sin and death are very dreadful, yet Jonah in his anger makes light of them both. Self-pity's consequences are dire. In fact, uh, as jo this fixation on self, being so self-centered and focused on ourselves, is the precondition in many ways of depression and suicide. The wages of sin is death. And how pitiful to so embrace your sin as to beg for its wages unabashedly. To be so self-focused and, so uh, and to be so overtaken by your sin that you basically in your self-pity begin to beg for its wages. It's better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah needed to hear the gospel again for himself. The gospel had powerfully transformed the city in front of him but he needed a powerful transformation in this moment so that his soul might be awakened to his own personal condition, that he might realize again the weight of sin and death. They are very dreadful. These are concepts that are not to be taken lightly. And thank God, in his grace and mercy, in contrast to Jonah, he did not give him his wish. He did not give Jonah his wish 
We notice also in the prophet's weariness of soul and his exhaustion and his sin that he displays an antipathy for the word, the law of God. Jesus said to us, he proclaimed that all the law could be summarized in basically two categories, love of God and love of neighbor. What is the greatest commandment after all? It's great in part because it summarizes uh, many others. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it. That is to say it's related to it. It's a necessary, it's, it's a necessary corollary. It goes with it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God and love for neighbor. Those are the basic commandments to walk in holiness. And yet you see, in self-pity, Jonah was violating all of the law virtually. His love for God was stunted in this moment. He was not seeking his will above his own. He was not trusting him with all his heart and soul and strength. But instead, he was in his waywardness of affections, presuming to be the judge over God and questioning the Lord's wisdom in this matter. And neither was he loving his neighbors. He would sooner see all these pagans rot in hell. He would sooner he would love to have watched, presumably, from his vantage point to the east, under his little temporary booth that he made, the fire from heaven rained down like Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this moment, we see him in contrast to Abraham. Do you remember Abraham had a vantage point, as it were, as he was praying over Sodom and Gomorrah? He pleaded with the Lord and he said, if there be, I can't remember the first number, a hundred righteous men, would you save the city? Would, if there's 50, would you? He's negotiating with the Lord. But the heart of Abraham in that case is a reflection. That's an example of God's glory by reflection. Abraham was acting in that way as a picture of the mediatory, the mediation, the intercessory role of Jesus who prays for us before the Father. And so the Lord grants to the mediator, as it were, that if there's ten righteous men, he will spare the city. That's the heart of compassion. That is the heart that we ought to have as we pray for the salvation of souls in this wicked world that we live in. As we pray for our own Nineveh circumstances, Lord, save the city if there be but ten righteous. And we could pray further. Let those ten righteous uh, encourage and spread the word to their neighbors. We beseech you on behalf of your glory to be long-suffering so that more might come into the kingdom. In contrast to this, there's the heart of Jonah who was upset with the Lord because God, sure enough, was gracious and slow to anger. And so he decided, well, maybe hope against hope. These people will be destroyed after all, so I'm going to go and watch and wait and see if the city will burn. Parallels reinforcing the message of Jonah. In this first portion, we see, in fact, that the story of Jonah and the accounts that reinforce it through Scripture expose these kinds of textbook sins. Next, let's, let's move to a parallel uh, Feast of Booths. And this is interesting. I also, I, I had a hard time exactly organizing how to share these parables with, or these uh, parallels with you. But there's also a reference, it seems, to East Side Judgment and, and Feast of Booths both in this next verse, verse 5. Jonah 4, 5. He went out of the city, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
This is an interesting reference. There's some details that indicate the revelatory that this is actually a significant statement beyond maybe the first glance. Let me submit to you a possible parallel here. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. That detail becomes more interesting when we consider it alongside several other passages of Scripture. In Ezekiel 11, 22 through 25, the glory of the once great temple is removed and it goes to the east. And in this picture, it's a, a sign of doom or judgment. The favor of the Lord, that is to say, His abiding presence with His people has now departed because of the judgment that is due them, because of their wickedness of heart. In Matthew 24, 1 through 3, Jesus also assumes this position. We touched upon this in our Matthew series. In Matthew 24, just before Jesus begins to proclaim the destruction of the temple, we find this detail. Jesus left the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point to him the buildings of the temple. And uh, he says, You see these, or they say, You see these, do you not? Uh, truly I say to you, he says, there will, be not be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then notice in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. Jesus has left the area of the temple and he's moved to the east. He sits on the Mount of Olives and then he proclaims judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. The same pathway that the glory of the God recede, uh, took receding from the temple, going to the Mount of Olives. Again, it's an omen, it's a harbinger, it's a sign of coming judgment. And then in our text today, Jonah presumptuously does the same thing, as if he had the authority and the right to judge the city of Nineveh. He went out to the east side of the city, out of the city, and sat to the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. It seems that the direction of Jonah's actions following Nineveh's repentance are significant. We see here some of its perhaps revelatory quality. Jonah is assuming the posture of divine judge in this action and presumptuously retreats to the east to watch the city burn. How could this relate? What application might this have for us today? Well, there are many who seem, they, they have this understanding a dispensationalism I'm thinking of, where they expect that Jesus is going to come any moment and that really all this world is, is useful for is burning. And this action of Jonah is comparable to sort of checking out. It's comparable to the, if you will, dispensational distancing ourselves as Christians from culture today, expecting an imminent return and burn a situation of Jesus. And here we are to the east side of the, wicked, of the once wicked city, in Jonah's case, but in our case of a wicked city, city building a pitifully temporary structure outside the city, waiting and longing for its destruction. And this is a temptation. Once we are assured of our own safety, it's easy to check out. You know, what's hard is to build up the boldness to go into the city and to preach yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Repent while there is still time. That's our call. That's the Great Commission. It raises the question, which Jonah will we be? Will we be the obedient Jonah that goes into the wicked city and proclaims the word of God, and yes, the judgments of God? 
Or will we be the cantankerous, disobedient Jonah that retreats from the city, watches it from the hillside, builds a pitiful little structure, and waits for it to burn? These are some ideas that we can see in the text that might apply to us today. Which Jonah will we be? I pray that the Lord finds us faithful, preaching the message of judgment for sin and salvation in Christ alone, so that we, if God chooses to glorify himself by reflection in this way, might be pleased to see people like the Ninevites repenting of their sin and coming to Christ. It may not be the whole city, but just one or two is worth the effort. In fact, for the Lord's glory alone, obedience is worth the effort. For the great privilege of being unified in a reflective way with the purposes of Him manifesting His glory through the proclamation of the gospel, let us be faithful to proclaim, to march forward with the message on our lips, to not retreat in cynicism. The Feast of Booths is interesting to consider in parallel to Jonah. Jonah ironically makes a booth for himself. What's a booth? Well, I don't know how many of you have seen that great American classic film, just iconic and Oscar-worthy, Nacho Libre. But in that movie, you remember uh, Nacho, it's one of my favorite films, <laughs> sort of a confession here. Nacho confesses to Chancho, you know, the little orphan kid. He's like, I go, I'm going through the wilderness, probably to die. And so the next scene, we find Nacho in the wilderness, and Escalito, you know, his partner in wrestling crime, finds him on top of this hill, and Nacho says, how did you find me here? So I saw you from the village. But on top of the mountain there, this little crest, this little hill, Nacho has built for himself a booth. Do you remember what it was? It's basically just if you were a little kid and you're going to build a teepee of sticks and see so he was huddled up under this temporary shelter, this pitiful structure, um, out in the wilderness, probably to die. That's what Jonah has done. Please take my life from me. He goes to the east side of the city and builds a booth for himself, a pitiful temporary structure, as it were, and waits probably to die. Well, this is, there were times in the people of God in their experience where they were commanded to build booths. But the contrast to Jonah's attitude couldn't be more stark. We won't go there today, but if you touch upon the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in Leviticus 23:42, Exodus 23:16, Deuteronomy 16:13, or Nehemiah 8, 14 through 16, all those references are in your notes. If you look in those passages, you see these times um, where God commissions, he, uh, uh, commissions a feast and a celebration, and the people were to build booths, but they were to do so commemorating God saving them as through the wilderness. But also, it was a feast right after the fullness of the harvest was gathered in. It was celebrated immediately after the full harvest. Because of this, the Feast of Booths was often referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. So when the people uh, were celebrating this event as God intended, they were celebrating His grace to ingather, His grace to preserve them through the wilderness. And this was the idea. In fact, as we look at the whole scope of Scripture, the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Ingathering spoke prophetically of a time when the Lord would ingather a people, not just from among the Israelites, but among the pagan nations, so that Ninevites and Romans and Greeks 
and uh, Germans and Swedes and whatever your nationality might be, people from all over the globe would come in to the great harvest that we see the proclamation of the gospel. Finally, the light shining that was prophesied to Abraham of old, you shall be a light to the nations. And God sends out his ambassador, Jonah, a light to the nations. And one of the precursors to this great event, a huge revival where the Lord gathers into his church, as it were, 120,000 pagans. And this is the very picture of what the celebration or feast of booths or tabernacles anticipated. And Jonah builds one, but he builds one in despair. He builds one in pity instead of celebration. So there's an ironic twist here. Thank God, when Jesus tabernacled with us, he did not do so in the heart of Jonah, but instead in contrast to him. Students of Greek are quick to notice in John chapter 1 that words are spoken or that terms are employed to show that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. After John opens up the glorious prologue to his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he goes on to say in verse 14, and the Word, of course speaking of Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reference there in the original language we find is to tabernacling, uh, to building a temporary structure or a booth, as it were. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came in to us in the incarnation and dwelt among, alongside us. It's as if he built a temporary structure of flesh in time, in history here, a flesh he still retains, by the way, in order to bring us the gospel of the kingdom and to satisfy the conditions of our salvation. And we have seen his glory, John goes on to say, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we are thankful in contrast to Jonah that the true prophet came and when he tabernacled among us, he didn't do so with an attitude of judgment and condemnation as it were, seeking for our destruction, but instead in willingly laying down his life as a ransom for many, loving us first that we might love him, proclaiming the message, the way, the truth, and the life to the Father through him and Him alone. This is the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles prefigured. The Feast of Pentecost, by the way, was associated with first fruits. That was just celebrated just four months, as I understand it, before the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Both feasts represent the fruit of God, the blessing of God, the future ingathering of God, the Gentiles coming in. And so we see, even as the gospel goes forward, after the effects of Jesus tabernacling among us, have come to their full consummation, he is ascended. And then Pentecost brings a great ingathering of the Gentiles. These things were prefigured in Jonah's day, but they were fulfilled in the great book of Acts. The last parallel to touch upon this morning, reinforcing the message of Jonah, is a, is a, a parable. Turn with me to Luke 15. In Luke's gospel, there are three parables back to back. The first is the lost sheep. The second is the lost coin. The third is the prodigal son, perhaps better said, lost son. 
In these three parables, we find continuing relevance uh, that helps us to make sense of Jonah's attitude and the right attitude we ought to have in light of the great uh, revival that took place in Nineveh. Luke 15:1. Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Pharisees and scribes grumbled and uh, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, there are those in Jesus' day who second-guessed God's will through his son, and they were angry and presumed to be the judge of him. And so he told them this parable in verse 3, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In Jesus' day, for the cynics, for the critics, for those who are predisposed to judge the plan of God as unfair or not right, Jesus delivered this parable. The right thing to do when a lost sheep is found, when a soul that is dead to rights, comes into the kingdom, is to join the attitude and the celebration, the glorious events in heaven, and to praise the Lord, to worship Him. There is joy before all the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. How much more joy ought Jonah to have had over 120,000? 120,000 lost sheep found that day. The occasion for celebration is seldom paralleled in history. Praise the Lord for this manifest miracle, for this glorious ingathering, for this powerful manifestation of His saving power. That would be the correct attitude. The second parable, parable is of the lost coin, and the third one becomes particularly helpful in discerning Jonah's case. There was a young man, there was a man who had two sons, excuse me, verse 11. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. You know the story. This is the story of the prodigal son. The young and reckless man wasted his inheritance through fleshly living until the day that he ended up feeding the pigs. It says in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants are more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He came to his senses. He woke up. He had an awareness, an epiphany, an enlightenment, a resurrection of the soul. Suddenly it occurred to him, what am I doing? This is a filthy position that I find myself in and is due to my own sin. I will go back and seek to be a hired servant. The Ninevites could fit into this category. I will arise, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son who stayed behind, what was his attitude? Well, 
Now the elder son was in the field, verse 40, 25, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Notice verse 28, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Do you do well to be angry? But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Father says to the son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What was, the what was the fitting response? For the dead souls in Nineveh coming into the kingdom, it would have been celebration. Jonah didn't think it was quite fair. Why should they just be absolved of all their sins in a moment when we are your people and so on and so forth, and I prefer destruction in this case? You see, we look at this parable in Luke 15, and I submit to you, probably most often identify with the prodigal, the one out there sinning, you know, lasciviously and, and uh, spending his father's money, a very obvious sinner. We often, we often apply this parable with that kind of sinner in mind. But in this parable, there are two kinds of sinners. There's the one that sins lavishly and knows it, and there's the other one who sins in, self, in, in pride and self-justification and doesn't know it as, as clearly. Which sinner is in a worse position? The one that sins spectacularly and knows it? Or the one that is uh, in his pride, not willing to see that he has no ground on which to stand to say, my brother doesn't deserve this kind of celebration, but instead should realize if it wasn't for grace alone, there's no way... He would have stayed with his father in the first place. Of course, grace is extended to the elder brother as well as the prodigal. The identity, and the identity of the elder son should not be lost on us. After all, Romans eleven eighteen through 22 says of those who have been grafted in, do not let pride overtake us. Just as easily as we were grafted in, the God, God has power to cut off. Do not become proud, but fear. Note then, he goes on further in Romans 11 to say, the kindness and severity of God. These are the messages that are reinforced in the book of Jonah, long before the book of Romans was written, long before Jesus proclaimed these parables in Luke 15. Jonah was the elder son, fits perfectly into that category. He needed to realize that these lost sons that came home, was, it was cause for great celebration. And the Lord, just like he does, Jesus uh, exemplifies in this parable, entreated him, entreated Jonah, came, came out and reasoned with him. And so the Lord did in Jonah's case, do you do well to be angry? And begins to discipline his son. And in this case, in contrast to Jonah's anger, he shows again his compassion. And so we, we see textbook sins exposed and the kindness of God, his grace and mercy magnified. 
In the case of the Ninevites, the prodigals. In the case of Jonah, the elder son. Praise the Lord. This week I heard that Charles Manson, the notorious, infamous serial killer, despicable man in every possible, unspeakable, imaginable category, is on death row, as it were, if they had such a thing in California. And uh, he's likely on his last legs. And uh, I heard this on the news, and of course no one has anything good to say about this horrific man. Um, years ago, Jeffrey Dahmer, a similar depraved individual, serial killer, did unspeakable things to his victims. I asked myself, the, the possibility, the scope of God's mercy, I always remember his profession of faith. He was interviewed by Dateline, NBC interview, one day before he was killed in prison and six months after his baptism. He explained, among his quotes, I have since come to believe that Jesus Christ is truly God, and I believe that I, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. He professed faith in Christ. He was baptized, and he was still giving this profession six months after that, and the next day he stood before the Lord. And I've asked myself the question, is Jesus' blood powerful enough? to justify Jeffrey Dahmer? I've told that story to others before, and it's usually met with cynicism, skepticism. It's like we just don't have it. I don't believe it, we might think. Just don't have a category in my mind to process someone that wicked being forgiven so easily. I don't think so. There were two thieves on the cross, on crosses next to Jesus when he died. There wasn't a long time to prove the fruits of repentance for the one when he confessed, having perhaps just moments before condemned the Lord himself, we see in another account, uh, suddenly his heart awakens to the fact that he is being killed next to his Messiah. And he confesses as much in simple, infantile baby words, you know, just as an infant would, confessing, eyes open in awareness of his father for the very first time. And Jesus tells him today, you will be with me in paradise. The man does not even have the opportunity like Jeffrey Dahmer did to be baptized. Is that man in glory? You better believe it. The most, who do we identify most with in this story? Do we most readily identify with the humbled, desperately thankful, penitent sinner, the thief on the cross-like, the Jeffrey Dahmer-like, despicable, depraved human being who deserves nothing but the hell and wrath of God except for the grace of God? Or do we more readily identify with the self-righteous, the comfortable, the presumptuous judge of the works and ways of Almighty God? We need to be careful there's an antidote for this tendency of Jonah, Cain, uh, the elder son, Esau, so on and so forth. There's an antidote for this. We need to regularly and personally revisit the gospel. Regularly and personally revisit the gospel. This is why we take communion regularly. To put us front and center with the reality of our own sins and to magnify the kindness of God to us, lest 
in the hardness of heart, the familiarity of our new surroundings, we become hardened to the beauty of the gospel for me, the beauty of the gospel for me, like the elder brother. So let us lean on these means of grace and learn these messages, these corrective truths from the book of Jonah and all of Scripture. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for what you have declared to us in your word. We thank you for its infallible truth. It's tested and proven. It never returns void. It accomplishes that which you send it to do. It is helpful like a surgeon's tool to do the the spiritual surgery that our soul needs if we entertain sin of any sort. I pray that your word would do its work in us today, that we would confess if we fall short of your glory in any of these or other categories. I also pray that your word would go forth and draw the prodigal to repentance. Thank you, Lord, that you have the power to do so. And when you do, may we who populate this church, may the body of Christ welcome the lost, no matter how despicably lost they once were, into the fellowship of the beloved, realizing the glorious, magnificent power of God to save 120,000 pagans in one fell swoop. We thank you, Lord, of the grace and the mercy that you shed abroad to us and to others. May we join the courses of heaven and celebrate these things throughout this day when you call us here again and in the in-between times in order that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.